As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, St. Andrews. My name is Darren. It's a privilege to talk to you. Keep uh, this passage open in front of you, and let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray by your spirit you would help us understand this difficult and challenging passage, and uh, you may encourage us in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, I can report, uh, thank you very much for your prayers recently for Christianity Explored. It's going very well. I'd say it's probably the favorite part of my job, uh, getting to do it over the last five years here in the church. Why I like it is I get to meet people from all over the city, from every corner of life in Hong Kong. And what's brilliant about it is I get to talk to them about Jesus. And uh, running it so many times, as you can imagine, I've heard every perspective and idea about Jesus that probably exists um, in the city. And the range is, is huge. Uh, people come to Christianity Explored with their questions, and they say things like, well, you know, uh, we don't have all the information, so how can we be sure? This is what we call in theology agnosticism. Or people are coming there, they're trying to check out different religions. They're, I call it religion shopping, and they're trying to see what the USP for each one is. Um, and, you know, they might say, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about becoming a Buddhist or a Christian. I just haven't decided yet. Um, or, you know, someone said to me a few courses ago, everyone in Thailand just seems so happy, so we should become Buddhists. Um, another friend said to me, well, uh, another guest said, um, you know, Jesus just seems like a nice idea, but we've no certainty on the evidence of the resurrection. That Jesus is more just a, a metaphysical feeling or idea in our heads. And um, what do you think of that? Or perhaps the most confronting is when people come and they say, well, is it not a bit arrogant of you? Is it not a bit arrogant at St. Andrew's or the church for you to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and to, to heaven? 
And I think these are all really good questions where I take care of some mission stuff here at St. Andrews. And we, as we heard from Home of Loving Faithfulness, we have 12 partners. We have four family units in other countries in, in the world. You have to ask, is it right? Is it arrogant that we spend our time and our money sending other people to places in the city and other countries to share the love of God and to spread the gospel? And anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time has felt some of these pressures. And in a, in a, in a city like Hong Kong, when we, where we have a world of faiths and a sea of perspectives, how can you be really sure that this is good news for everyone? And well, I do think, and I hope we'll see, that Acts 9, the end of Acts 9, this lesser known part of Acts gives us our answer. An answer to, give, to answer these questions with great confidence as we come to a critical point in the book where we see the testimony and witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going out. It's going global. It's going viral as we see that the message about Jesus, that he is the appointed judge of the living and the dead, is good news for all. Uh, anyone can be forgiven. And well, if you've been following up to now, you, you know that the program's been set. Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends off the earth. And where we left off last week, Acts 9.31, Jerusalem and Samaria, the church had enjoyed relative success. The Holy Spirit had built it up and they were enjoying a time of peace. But now we pivot in chapter 9 to what I would argue is probably the most significant event for, for you and I and all of humanity as now the gospel goes forward to the rest of the world and we see the first Gentile converts. It's a bit like the water has been held in by a damn wall, but now it is cascading forward and nothing can stop it. The, the bridge has been joined together. The ribbon has been cut and the gospel, it, it, it can't be stopped. So we're going to look at this. We're trying to understand this uh, slightly nuanced passage in three stages. The two acts of Jesus. Jesus is man, who is Peter. And thirdly, my third point is called the gospel testimony of the church. I think if we can grab it, we'll have confidence for God's place for us and for our church here in this city. And it's a very dramatic passage, if you were listening, wasn't it? Uh, we've got two locations. The first is uh, two miracles. The first town's called Lydda. Peter goes there. You can go there today. It's northwest of Jerusalem. It's now called Lod. And it was the main road between Syria and Egypt and uh, Jerusalem and Joppa. And Peter goes and he finds there a man called Aeneas. And we're told very specifically uh, where he lived, his name, and that he had been bedridden for eight years. And this is all very deliberate language by the Dr. Luke, the author of uh, the gospel and now his sequel, the book of Acts. And Luke uh, in his style as a doctor, so scientific, so careful, real places, real names, real people, real events, real diseases. And interestingly, uh, the, the language that is used for Aeneas is literally that he had dropped from the side. And we're fairly confident this is the language a, a first century doctor would have used for a stroke patient. And what does Peter do? Well, rather spectacularly, he approaches the man and he says, in the name of Christ, pick up your mat and walk. And into all of that sadness and loneliness and pain of his life, what happened? He stands up to the amazement of the whole town 
and many there believed in the Lord. And you think, wow, isn't that tremendous? But Luke isn't really interested in letting us dwell on this miracle for the very next verse. We're across, we've moved further west. We're in the town called Joppa. And this is interesting because four times Joppa is emphasized in these brief 10 verses. Now, where have we heard Joppa before? Those of you who know your Bible will know it was an Old Testament prophet called Jonah, a man who was trying to get away from God and sharing God's love with uh, the Gentiles. And here we have now God's love and God's gospel going to the Gentiles in the port town of Joppa. It was the only port town between, um, between Egypt and uh, Lebanon. And uh, we're introduced to another sad story, a lady called Tabitha. That was her Hebrew name, uh, but she was also known as Dorcas in Greek. I imagine her friends stuck with Tabitha. Her enemies probably called her Dorcas, but the translation means gazelle. And we're told, very interestingly, not just the emphasis on her name, but in verse 36, that she was well known in the town for her good works of charity. She was well known. Another real person in a real place who was known, and her problem was that she had really died. We know this because we're told that when Peter is summoned, he finds that she has been washed, which was the, the cultural ceremony before a funeral, and all of the mourners had gathered uh, to grieve her death. And Peter, again, very matter of fact, he sends the other mourners out, he goes into the room, he gets down on his knees, and he prays. He says, uh, open your eyes, get up. And what does she do? She opens her eyes, and she sits up to the glory of God, and many in the town believe that day. And the end of our story, the end of our narrative, I'm going to call this the 2.5 miracles in, in 10 verses, for it's rather remarkable, for we're told at the end that Peter goes to stay with a guy called Simon, and Simon is a tanner. And why do I call this a miracle? Because it's pretty much the cultural equivalent of one of us at St. Andrew saying we're going to go and do missionary service in Penny's Bay after the 9.30 service. It's absolutely preposterous. It's so culturally inappropriate. For what was a tanner? A tanner was someone who made objects and garments out of pigs. And what was the most um, offensive animal under the Jewish law. It was pigs and pork. And for a growing Jewish man to go and stay in the house of a pig worker was completely unthinkable. And yet in these 10 verses, we have three snapshots of the gospel going forth to the world, the gospel at the crossroads town of the nations, the gospel going to the port town of Joppa where someone tried to escape, and the gospel going even to the house of a pig worker. So much detail, so much emphasis, so uh, it's dripping in history. But why? why? Why does Luke go to all of this effort? Well, it's so that we can't sit here and say simply that this was just an illusion. This was a trick, a fraud, a setup. He wasn't really sick or she wasn't really dead. They didn't have the technology then. No one really knew History and life do not work in that way in communities. So why would we ever apply that judgment to the Bible? Here was an ace who were told carefully, bedridden for eight years. Have you ever had a limb in a cast for 10 to 12 weeks? 
And then when the cast comes off, you see how gross your arm or your leg looks. You're probably not Instagramming that week. Um, you know, it's, it's horrible. And it can take up to a year to get back to full strength. And yet we're told that this man for eight years, probably with a stroke, in all of his sadness and loneliness, he stands up with joy to the glory of God in the community. It's remarkable. And then Tabitha, what was her problem? She was dead. Now, this is highly uncommon. Um, but, you know, at St. Andrews, when we get the call from a member of our church or the extended family that someone has passed away, it's an awful thing. We go and we grieve and we, we weep with them. No one says they aren't dead. I, I sadly did a funeral on Thursday afternoon for a young woman. The church was packed and no one sitting there was saying, oh, she's not really dead. We just don't have the technology to understand this. The whole community knew this person and they were there that Thursday to show the outpouring of their grief. The purpose of these two miracles are to show us very clearly that what is happening in the book of Acts is on a completely different level. It's, on, it's a completely different order than what we can comprehend. And that's why we, to understand them, to understand what they mean, we have to, have to understand who Jesus' man really is. And don't you think it's interesting, the last couple of chapters, it's all been Paul, Paul, Paul. Paul's the superstar preacher. Paul's the, the missionary to the Gentiles. Paul's the dramatic testimony and conversion from hurting the church to now preaching the gospel to, to the Gentiles. And now it's almost like deployed out of the blue. Here is Peter again. And you know Peter, don't you? You know big sword, bigger mouth, ready, fire, aim. You know, that was his modus operandi. He gets a bad deal. And yet Peter did something very special in the Gospels. We're told in Matthew that he was the first person to recognize that Jesus was not just a man, but he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus promised to Peter that on him he would build his church, for Peter would have the keys to bind and loose in heaven. A remarkable promise. And now we see that Jesus is fulfilling that promise as he is building his church upon Peter. And I wonder if you were following, if you were, if you were following very carefully, you might have picked this up in the narrative. For we see very clearly that Peter was Jesus' man, Jesus' rep. For here we see Peter acting in the name of Jesus, in the manner of Jesus, with the words of Jesus, to the glory of Jesus. This book is called the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's wrong. It should be called the Acts of Jesus, for it is always done in Jesus' name and to his glory. And so consider the first miracle for a moment. You remember Aeneas? What does Peter say to him? In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and make your bed. Who is doing the miracle here? Where is the power coming from? Well, let me ask you another question. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Have we seen anything like this before? Mark 2, Luke 5, a paralyzed man is lowered down through a roof and Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. Pick up your mat to show that I have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus heals a paralytic and tells him to go home. He says, your sins are forgiven. Just a word, just a word to demonstrate Jesus' authority as the Son of God and the one who really could forgive. And now Peter, 
invoking the name of Jesus. A very similar event with just one piece of difference that Peter is using Jesus' name. And then Tabitha. Can you think carefully where you might have read or heard about this before? It's again from our writer Luke. Back in his gospel in chapter 8, you will know that Jesus performed a miraculous miracle of a well-known Pharisee called Jairus. Sadly, his daughter had passed away. Jesus goes, and the events are so similar, for Peter is there. Jesus sends everyone else out. He goes in on his own, and he says to the little girl, get up. And at that moment, she opened her eyes, and she sat up in the bed. It's a wonderful miracle. But I think there's an even more interesting parallel here. For what did Jesus say to the little girl? He said, Talitha kum, get up. And what does Peter say to Tabitha? Tabitha Talitha kum. Uh, the, the parallels between their names are, are too close, I think, to be a mere coincidence. Tabitha Talitha. Tabitha, get up and make your bed. And here we see Peter acting in the manner of Jesus, using the words of Jesus to the glory of Jesus. For many in the town that day believed. But they didn't just believe in a very shallow sense in the miracles. We're told literally that they metanoid, they repented, they turned and they put their trust in God. And why is Luke doing this? Well, he's doing it very carefully. He's doing it carefully to show the same language and events and styles and manners, to show the continuation of the work of Jesus that established his identity and his authority is now with the apostles and the early church and the local church. And the message has been the same ever since. He offers hope and forgiveness and life to those who put their trust in him, the forgiveness of sins and victory over death, to show that this new group had all of Jesus' authority. Luke is showing us definitively, very clearly, there can be no doubt and this message is going global. It shows us that God doesn't leak his news. This is not like some uh, economic speculator on the interest rate or governments, you know, leaking policy to see what their reaction might be before tweaking it. You know, we've all been doing it for two years, 21 plus zero, seven plus three, three plus zero. Will it go back up before Christmas? That's what we've been talking about, right? We, no one knows. But here we have definitively and clearly God announcing what he has always said he was going to do through his church. The word of God going forward about the man of God to raise a people of God for the glory of God. This is the book of Acts. It cannot be stopped. And it says it's going to the ends of the earth. You know why I know this is true? Because at our last church census that we did, we, we found out that we had something like 36 different nationalities across our five services. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? And isn't that just what God said he was going to do in Acts? And yet we're all here in Hong Kong this morning. These miracles show who Peter represented and whose power was really backing him and writing the checks. And thirdly, well, I think helpfully and perhaps a more application slant on this passage and the thought of miracles. Many of us will be sitting here and we'll be struggling with this idea. And often the logic goes like this. Well, logic breaks the laws of science and the laws of creation, and that simply cannot happen. Uh, miracles break logic. Laws cannot be broken. 
Uh, this cannot happen, so therefore, there cannot be any God. And I um, don't want to turn this into an apologetics lecture. We simply don't have time. We've done those before on our website on miracles and science. But I certainly don't want to be hard on people who struggle with the idea of miracles, even Christians. For time and time again in the Gospels, we are told that the disciples doubted and the people doubted very, very readily. And I think it's very helpful. The, the Bible tells us this, for it shows us that the order of these things were not readily accepted. And it blows away any of the notion that the people in the first century were just very naive and primitive, and they would have believed anything. If you read any part of the Gospels for five minutes, you see that that is not the case at all. But to say that God could not intervene in his creation, I think, leads us to a very circular argument. For we do see that we have laws and order in society and in nature. And it would provoke the question, where do these laws and order come from? Why do we have something and not nothing? Why do we have order and not chaos? And if you give the benefit of the doubt just for a few minutes that there was a divine architect in, in, in the universe, would it not be possible for this architect or creator to intervene in his created project, even for just a few moments. But I think more helpfully, and I'll be brief, but if, if you would like to think more about the subject of miracles and faith and science, can I commend to you the wonderful, wonderful podcast by John Dixon called Undeceptions. Pastor Alex and I enjoy it very much, and he gets some of the world's top scientists and thinkers and ethicists, and they, they show how faith has credibility and value in a world competing for ideas. But I'll say one more point on miracles, and that is that they were never meant to be an end in themselves. Never. Um, they were never meant for Jesus or Peter to show off their power. That's what, that's what Simon the sorcerer wanted. Um, you know, Peter wasn't exactly saying, hey guys, look at me, look at that tree. I'm going to turn it into chocolate gold coins. Isn't God great? No, they were never meant for that purpose of fame or money. But from the very beginning of the Gospels, from the raising of the lame to the healing of the sick to the raising of the dead, they were always done to establish the identity of Jesus and his church and the authority that backed it, that Jesus and the church are the ones with the message of salvation, the ones that can forgive sin and offer the hope of life over death. Because what Jesus knew, that far worse than any illness or even, God forbid, any stroke, was the reality and the consequences of sinful humans coming before a holy God unforgiven. Jesus knew that was the greatest need that humanity faced. And well, you're probably wondering what I think. I, I believe that God can and does miracles. I pray for miracles. We pray for miracles. We do it each Sunday after the service. Have you noticed? We say, bring your sick to St. Andrews. We go and visit the sick and we pray for them. Please do not bring your dead here. We have enough problems with government health codes at the moment. But I do pray for miracles. I, I usually pray for divine intervention and miracles when I go to the dentist. Have you ever noticed when you go to the dentist, apologies, I know we have dentists here, but you notice they place the chair in the waiting room just close enough to the room with the loudest drill. 
They do that on purpose because dentists are great evangelists and they want you to pray. But I do pray, and I pray that, that, God, that this, would, this would go well and it would be okay. But I also have to acknowledge that I don't see this as the norm in the developed world anymore. I have exp- I'm lucky enough that I have experienced uh, one or two miracles in my life. To tell you, I think, would be unhelpful. Um, but I have seen and experienced more of these things in places where the church is non-existent. And uh, I also have to except there is great disagreement amongst Christians on this issue. I hold this very much as a secondary issue. William Taylor of St. Helens in London, he writes very helpfully that he has a bookshelf in his office about miracles and the range of perspectives on this bookshelf, that there are some Christian friends of his who have wrote these books that don't believe that any miracles or signs happen anymore. Others believe that um, signs and miracles are from a, um, a special time or season that God has ordained. Perhaps you've heard about things, things like the Toronto Blessing or the Heavenly Man. Others believe that, well, for evangelism to be effective, it must simply be accompanied by miracles and signs or it will not work. So what does this tell us, you know, if we're struggling to believe this? I can and believe that God can help me in the dentist chair. If he does not divinely intervene, I believe he's given me a dentist and drugs to help me uh, get over the line as well. And while I'm lucky enough to have experienced some things in this universe that I cannot comprehend, I was saying to Alice last night, I never think about these things. They form a very small part of my Christian foundation to the point I mostly forget about them until someone asks me, have I ever seen a a, a healing? Um, But I do think it would be categorically wrong for us to take the application from this passage away, that we are to go away and emulate and copy Peter and Jesus. That is not the point of Acts chapter 9. Why? Because Jesus was the definitive miracle man. Jesus was the man doing the miracles. And what happened to him? His friends still left him. The authorities still killed him, and the people still did not believe him. I do not believe that any miracle will actually make someone believe in God because they will always find a way to disbelieve it in their hearts. And Jesus categorically told his followers, he rebuked them for chasing miracles and seeking signs. He said, don't seek signs, don't chase them. Chase me, seek me, and everything else will be added onto you. Chase me and signs and wonders will follow. And as I've said, as I've said, these miracles, they were always to establish the identity of the Savior. And I hope you know, there is no greater joy, no greater work, no greater miracle that, 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 that Jesus and Paul speak of than a sinner becoming a saint, than the lost being found, than the prodigal coming home. Paul compares this to the work of creation as God gives life to a dead heart and soul. I hope you know that. So if the purpose of these miracles um, wasn't just to impress people or to get fame, what was it for? The purpose was always to provoke worship, not just to establish Jesus's identity. Now, I know that I look like I have no class 
whatsoever, okay, I know that. Me and my wife, we go for a walk down Nathan Road on a Sunday evening, and because I look so disheveled, the only thing that I am offered to purchase are some nice suits, so I may look better. But Alice looks like she's got all the class and talent, so estate agents come up to her and offer her the opportunity to buy 50, 60 million dollar properties. And I think, wouldn't that be nice, you know? And they say, come and see the showroom. And I say, come on, Alice, let's go and see how the other half live. Let's go and put our suits on. You put on a nice dress. We can go up and see what it's really like. And so we do this. We go up in the lift, swanky room, get a glass of cava, very nice. And you know who we see who's there? All the other St. Andrew staff and senior church members. <laughs> now, that's not entirely true, but it makes for a good illustration. Why do I tell you that joke? Because I think this analogy has more punch than I have led you to believe. For the miracles in the Bible are exactly like that, better than any 900 square foot condominium with parking and a nice clubhouse. The showroom is, is the picture. The showroom is the snapshot. The show flat is the window into heaven as Jesus shows you what his perfect kingdom is going to be like one day when everything is restored, when death is conquered, when sins are forgiven, when the disappointments in work and relationships and life, the hopes that we have for our friends and family and partners, when, when those hopes are not realized and we feel so disappointed, Jesus in these miracles gives us a window that one day he is going to make all things new, just like Aeneas and Tabitha. It's a snapshot of his new creation, and he proved it. He signed the check when he rose from the grave. His resurrection demands it. His coming back to life secured the victory for the church and for the future. And that means you and I can face the future with hope and confidence for Jesus is making all things new. Well, I can't say it any better. I'll close up with a wonderful quote on miracles by Timothy Keller, who writes so well. He says this, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. The world we all want is coming. Wouldn't that be nice if it was true? Well, this is what Jesus promises us for our hearts, our bodies, our relationships, our work. And he says, if we put our trust in him, he will raise us all. And so that's why when I meet my friends or I go to Christianity Explored and someone says, well, I'm an agnostic. We don't have all the information. I have to say politely, Luke shows us in Acts 9 very clearly that, that to say we don't have the info, we're avoiding the facts. Or if someone says, well, I, I think um, all religions are true. They're just competing claims. I have to say very politely, the claims of Jesus Christ cannot stack up to any other philosophy or religion. Or the person who says that, well, Jesus is just a nice idea, a metaphysical idea for our hearts. I have to say, no, in Luke chapter 9, 
Jesus follows, is Jesus' man. He does the miracles to show that he is Jesus' authority to prove that Jesus has risen from the dead. He really rose, and he promises he can do it for you, and the message has not changed ever since. He says, sinner, make your bed and get up. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let me pray. Father, help us in our, in our temporal and limited frames of mind to understand uh, the things beyond our world. Thank you, Father, that you raised your son Jesus from the dead and through him that you have given life to your people and your church. I pray, Lord, for the, the, the parts of Scripture that, that we struggle and wrestle with, Lord, with ideas such as miracles. You would give us grace to be at peace with them. And as we seek and long for healing, Lord, for those in our own lives to with disappointments, Father, I pray that you would give us grace, but also courage and patience to look forward to the future when all things will be made new under your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.